This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor of the Federal News Network. And uh, we're doing uh, taking a look back at 2019, the year that was in government procurement. Jason, it just seems like yesterday we were doing 2018, the year that was. Man, time is flying fast. So absolutely, time flies fast. And Roger, it's always a pleasure to be on your show to to be able to uh, be the interviewee instead of the interviewer once in a while. So thank oh, you. It's for, my pleasure to thank, accommodate thank you. For you. Up, <laughs> right to accommodate me. Yes, <laughs> so. exactly. 2019 was a great year in many ways. Uh, there were some things that I was surprised about. There were some things that I wasn't. We still saw protests after protests after protests of major government-wide vehicles. Now, I'm not saying of all vehicles. And again, I will repeat something that David Drapkin told me years ago. There's tens of thousands of contract actions that happen every year that most of them don't get protested. But the ones that do, we all see it. And of course, we could start with the big one at DOD Jedi. I think the other big thing that stood out to me, of course, is is all the changes at the General Services Administration, the move to consolidate down to one schedule from 24, huge changes coming to GSA in 2020, and they started to obviously lay the foundation in 2019. And then the other piece I'll put out there that, that kind of surprised me, Roger, was supply chain. Now, I'm not surprised by it because I've been covering supply chain risk management and, the, and how it adds to the federal procurement side of the government, uh, I would say in 2017, 20, 2018. So I, I like to say I was ahead of the curve on that one, but it really ramped up in 2019 and 2020 is only going to be even more intense around what's yes. in your supply chain. How do you manage it? And if you don't, if you aren't managing it well, oh, there'll be big problems. And that relates also, I think, to cybersecurity because it's all kind of connected. Yes, absolutely. And of course, we have to talk about the False Claims Act and then the new door that's open for potentially cybersecurity False Claims Act. So I don't know. Where do you want to start? I open the door wide. Well, for let's all start that with uh, the first thing you brought up, and you know those those, those nasty little things called bid protests. That uh, um, and this was kind of an interesting year in particular. That you know major programs were protested. The one that everybody's focused on over the course of the year, and it was quite you know quite a story to follow, is the Jedi uh, bid protest and. Just your thoughts on that. And, you know, right now, you know, um, Amazon has filed its protest of the award to Microsoft. It's at the court and, you know, things are moving on. But just your impression of that that procurement and where we are today. I'll start off by saying every prediction I made around Jedi was wrong. I thought, well, then we should change the subject. (laughs) Because whatever I tell you probably won't be wrong. But if I make any predictions, just bet against me. Okay. Okay. That's that's my rule of thumb. If I'm somewhere and I think I should go right, I should just go left. Yes. I get get it. But but let me me digress back to this idea of, of Jedi. The fact that Amazon protested, I was a little surprised by. I'm not sure what will happen. And I won't make a prediction because, again, I haven't been that successful. But what I do know is. It was surprising Microsoft won. It was surprising that Oracle's protest didn't have more legs, and obviously it's not done. It's still at the appeals court. 
But what maybe stood out to me the most of this whole 2019 is in the defense authorization bill, which was passed in December, there's very little Jedi language in there. And in fact, basically, Congress said to DOD, just send us a report of where you're at, but but full speed ahead. And that was more surprising than anything else that maybe happened is that Congress that was so involved in this all of a sudden took a half a step or a full step back and said, all right, we seem you seem to be going down a good path. Go. Right. Well, I think one of the things that did come out of of the Jedi sort of issue of single award versus multiple award is that I, th- you know, if, if, if I understand correctly in the NDAA, there's language that makes it much easier to do a single award IDIQ, you know, versus, you know, the requirements for a determination to do, you know, when you're going to do a single versus a multiple award and the preference for a multiple award. I think they've watered that down significantly to allow, you know, for single awards. Um, I think maybe that's one of the, you know, sort of outcomes of the Jedi um, decision as well. And, um, and it does go to that issue. You, you know, I don't think we'd be right here in this case, place and situation if it had been a multiple award, obviously, right? Because that's one of the – that was the huge issue with, with regard to industry and whether or not the department was following commercial best practices with regard to a multi-cloud environment or uh, a single cloud and, you know, and, and the risks associated with that. Considering that DoD wrote the requirements for Jedi potentially two years, almost three years ago yes, now, yes. considering that how much cloud has changed in those three years, I'm a little surprised if they did, DoD dug their heels in so deeply. And considering that they could have just awarded to Amazon, Microsoft, and Oracle, and IBM, and just called it a day, and really directed, and I'll use that in quotes if people could see us, task orders to their cloud of choice. I, I, I'm, I'm, a lot of it does surprise me, and I'm not sure there's a lot of clarity about why DoD was so hell-bent on the single-award approach. We, we know what they've said publicly, but there's got to be something behind the scenes, and I'd be interested to know if it's one of those things that would come out if if maybe someone filed a FOIA about it. Now, we've tried to file some FOIAs on other things that, that we weren't so lucky but it would be interesting to get the acquisition strategy. As someone who spent 20 years or plus in a GSA, is that foible? Is the acquisition strategy foible after the well, fact? Well, I mean, you you might get some of it, um, but there may it parts of it may be redacted. It's you know, uh, um, with regard to the decision making process, you know, um, you know, I think you're you're, but you're touching on a good point. So, and I think. DOD's tried to make a clear statement about where it's going with cloud, but you know there's still I think you're reflecting the uncertainties I think of people just you know people who watch this for a living where where are they going you know is it you know one would argue could argue and I think DOD has it's already a multi cloud environment with all the other contracts they have in place for cloud services and cloud that's delivered across. The department already that we already have that environment and that this is that wasn't is and remains an effort to try to kill build a foundational you know cloud capability that's cuts across at the same time having a flexibility with those other programs you know I I mean I think there's more to come on you know where is the department going and with the rapid you know advances in technology and capabilities you the, the they do have to be flexible. They got to figure out how to quickly acquire this stuff as quickly as they can. And 
you know, in a certain sense, going, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but going back to it, that sounds like more of a multiple ward type approach to get stuff quickly, do task orders quickly. You can do that. One of the interesting arguments that the department made is it's too hard to do a multiple ward in a certain sense is what you heard. And I just, you know, as someone who worked on multiple ward, major ones at GSA, you know, they're precursors to the current Alliant program. Um, I even worked on Alliant a little bit in its initial um, rollout back in GSA in their early 2000s when they were just conceiving of the pro- that program. You know, if you do those contracts right, there's a huge amount of streamlining and flexibility at the competition level for task orders. I have a great story about Alliant, and we're, we're going to digress if you let me. Sure, Absolutely. I remember when the Alliant awards were made and then there was a protest of the, the awards and I talked to someone from GSA, I won't mention who, and they were walking down uh, the hallway of a conference and we were talking and they said, we've got this in the bag. We've won this. We know we've won this. I said, I don't think so. They said, nope, nope. All our T's are crossed. All our I's are dotted. And uh, I said, well, why do you believe that? And, and they just kind of gave me the usual, you know, we did everything right. We believe right. we have the right foot to stand on. So in the end, we know what happened. We know that, that they lost the protest. They took yes. corrective action. They let everybody on the contract. And here we are 15 years later, whatever it's been, we're in Alliant 2. And the multiple award has not stopped any agency from getting what they need in a very you know, fast manner because right. you know, they're not getting, you know, there's 50, there was 59, I think, awards initially in Alliant. Yes. They weren't getting 57 bids every t- every task order. They weren't getting even 40 bids. I think the average bid was like three to five number of bids, which which is typical for any contract or any, any acquisition. So, again, going back to what you said with DOD and, and even going back to the NDA language, which is a little surprising to me, why would they make it easier to create these single awards? I, th- I think that goes against everything – that the government has been doing for the last 25 years in, in federal procurement. Yeah, I think you know, one of the things you, you'd have to look at, and I know um, I think Steve Schooner and uh, GW have done some research on this, is that although there's that statutory framework for preference for multiple awards, the if you look at the data in terms of the number of single award IDIQs that are out there, it still you know is the you know the market. Right and drives the market the single award, so it's kind of interesting. Um, so maybe people decided to throw in the towel. I don't know. But you don't count, for instance, something off a GSA schedule as a no, single no, award. No, absolutely this is not. Just yeah, this is like single award IDIQs. Yeah, um, it'd be interesting to take a look at that research. Aside from Jedi, the other kind of protest that stood out to me, obviously, is GSA's two GIT, the second generation IT services, which is the next great. They won't call it a GWAC because don't you know the people who run GWACs get very upset at you if you call yes. it a GWAC. Yep. But another government wide multiple award contract, and, and then at the same time, I think you know you're seeing some other uh, protests. Air Force has one of their big cloud procurement. So I think when it comes to these big multiple award, oh, Dios is the other one that stood yep, out Dios, to me, yep. and and GSA is taking corrective action on that. What st- stands out to me is that agencies are always worried about protests, always built it into their timeline. But instead of just saying, well, we're going to get protested anyways, I think there are things they can do. And one of the things that came out in, in the Jedi uh, court documents is the lack of debriefing that DOD gave Amazon. And they could have 
really just opened the kimono, said, okay, every question you give us, we will answer to our extent possible. And I think Amazon said they gave us something like 269 questions that weren't answered. And that just – maybe that's overkill. Maybe that's way too many. That sounds like a set of interrogatories to me actually, <laughs> to be honest with you. From the lawyer. 269 questions. From My the, goodness. From the lawyer. Yeah. Your deposition never lasted that long? <laughs> yeah, and they could last a long time. <laughs> so I, th- I think that if agencies take on this enhanced debriefing and, and really show all the documents and, and provide as much detail as possible, they may be able to avoid several of these big p- protests – at the same time, Roger, you as well as anyone knows, sometimes some things are just going to be protested. The the vendor can't, given the stakes yes. can't afford to lose it, right? So I, I, it'd be interesting to see how twenty twenty rolls with some of these procurements that are currently under protest. What kind of corrective corrective action is is taken, and what GAO and or the Court of Federal Claims decides? Right. Yep. So you know what? We spent a whole segment on bid protests. Uh, shame on us, right, Jason? When we come back, let's talk a little bit about the GSA and particularly what's going on there over the la- course of the last year. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is the Jason Miller, executive editor of the Federal News Network. And Jason gets to be interviewed but uh, today, and I, I know you're appreciative of that. Sorry. It's always fun. I don't necessarily always get to give opinions, but when you and I talk and, and kind of get all nerdy on procurement, I can offer a little, little insights that I've seen and, and ask you some questions that you can Sure, you turn it on. around, though, too, and start asking me questions, put me on the spot. That's okay. I appreciate that. Um, so the segment, let's, let's start out by just talking a little bit about um, GSA. Um, it's been a very significant year, sort of setting a foundation for what I think will be an even you know, more transformative year for GSA in 2020. Um, your thoughts. Anytime you talk about GSA, I have to start in two places. The first place is obviously Alan Thomas leaving. I think that's a big loss. He was the commissioner yes. of the Federal Acquisition Service. And it's less that Alan is just a great guy and he's really nice and he always talked to us. But it's more about what he did and the steps he took in that role. And, you know, Roger, you and I have been watching this space for a long time. And we've seen you know, the pre-FAS, the FTS, FSS folks. I have a hard time when I think back if there was a better Federal Acquisition Service or, or relatable uh, commissioner than, than uh, Alan, not not because, again, he was such a nice guy, but because he really said, how can we serve our customers better? How can we do things better? How can we change our approach to acquisition? And perfect, probably not. Uh, will this consolidation of schedules happen without a hitch? No, probably not. But that's okay too. I think he laid the foundation in, in such a way that GSA is on a really good fit, footing. And you know, you and I had this conversation years ago, and I remember this distinctly. I said, I can't believe GSA schedules lose money. And you said, you have to understand. Sometimes you have to sell toothpicks to get other people in into the giant have food store. Lost leaders, right? Lost leaders, right? And that was a great explanation that GSA did a lot of loss leaders. But in, in 2019, and, and they expect, uh, imagine so in 2020, they actually didn't stop. They stopped losing money. They're back in the black, and uh, that, that was a testament, I think, to Alan Thomas's and his ability to, to really refocus GSA and become more customer driven. The second thing I have to add to – Well, let me first just on, on Alan Thomas, just to add. So it's to me, when I think of Alan, um, you know, I, if one of the things about his legacy is, you know, your organization is only as good as the people are in it. And one of the things that, that was sort of 
of just his focus on the people and the team and changing the dynamic and even the esprit de corps, the morale of the organization, that can have and did have more consequences, more return on investment just in focusing on the people and changing the whole dynamic of how how that management and operational framework worked. That's, to me, one of his legacies and one of the reasons why you see the organization performing at a higher level is that focus on people and, you know, and, and listening and going around and talking to people. And, and part of that is being a nice guy, frankly. And, you know, and people, you know, appreciated that he cared and was trying to make the place better. And, you know, they bought in. So much different personality than some, maybe some other commissioners. Um, very people uh, focused, absolutely, and, and media focused too, which we appreciated. Oh yes, I'm sure you did. Yes, <laughs> he's on this show one a couple times too. So he was always good at for a quote. Yes. The second thing I'll, I'll throw out to you about GSA that, that happened this year, and, and this was a soapbox of mine, Rogers. You know, for years is the retirement of FedBizOps.gov. Yay! If I had uh-huh. music, I'd play Celebration or something from Cool and the Gang, because. It was literally the most and you are old guy. frustrating yeah, yeah, yeah. website in government. Uh, I, I am. I admit that. That's fine. Um, but the fact is they moved to beta.sam.gov. And while beta.sam.gov is not perfect, has some room to grow, it, it's got to be better than the 1998 website that FedBizOps was. And obviously GSA deserves some kudos for that move. It's been a long time coming. They had delayed it four times previously. Uh, this has not been a smooth the integrated acquisition environment. dates back to 2003-2004 timeframe under the Bush administration. It has not been a smooth 15 or so years of this pro- program. They've had some stoppages and starts with contractors. They've had some cure letters. They've had some uh, recompeting. But they seem to be on a good path. They seem to be merging and consolidating these, these disparate databases. And, and to me, what's important is they can check the box. They moved it. Now in 2020, they have to check the box that they've improved it. Yeah, and I, that's a great point, Jason. And you know, you know, to their credit, they've launched it. Right, that's sort of the first step. Um, if, if people ex, with the expectation it was going to be perfect right out of the box, you know, that's you don't understand government and systems, frankly. A- anywhere, yeah, exactly. And you know, private sector too. Same thing happens. Have you ever heard of Windows? Yeah, that, well, that, that, okay. that's never really good out the box either. Sometimes. So. <laughs> You said that. That's what. That's what you remember, companies. Uh, Sorry, Roger. (laughs) um, But uh, you know, know, the other thing that we've already seen is a commitment on GSA's part to continue to work with stakeholders to address and you know issues that have come up to be very receptive in a positive you know framework um, feedback on how the new system is working. You know, for example, at our conference. Uh, this year uh, in November, um, you know, Judith Swaski was there and she actually gave as part of her presentational briefing on, on, on Sam and how things were going and things that they had identified and know about. And, you know, and there's a commitment on her part and on GSA's part to continue to have conversations with industry about how things are going and where things need to be addressed. So, and that's critical ultimately to the long-term success of, any program or any system that's rolled out. And that's good to see that, you know, and that's sort of, again, that's that reflection of trying to improve things, focusing on things, um, and continuing that conversation. So, 
we talked a little bit in the beginning about the schedules consolidation, and, and it's a big year in 2020. We'll see the, the final solicitation, what the new single solicitation will look like sometime in January. And then over the next now, year. It was issued in October 1st, actually. Um, but you now we'll start getting new offers. And then you know, to your point on January 1st, there's people have to start accepting the mass mod who have contracts to reflect that new solicitation that comes out. So it's sort of a two-step thing. And, um, you know, so collectively it will, that those documents will be in place January 1st. And then the next step will be to, for people with multiple contracts to work towards negotiating a consolidation down to one. And that's going to take months. How difficult will that be for a big company like a, Kerasoft, just to pick them out of the blue, to 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 negotiate, or or even somebody like a Salesforce, if they have multiple, or IBM or Grant Thornton, or you know, you can pick your your different companies. Um, that's a great question, and I think it depends. The answer depends. is it depends on you know the you know the basically it depends on the details of those contracts. Like one of the there's multiple issues going on there, but you know to the extent. GSA is consolidating the line items, you know, the SINs down from 900 to 300. What does that look like as you offer your products? You're going to have to think about that. You're going to have to look at how your pricing was negotiated to the extent you still have, you know, the price reduction clause in the contracts and you've negotiated tracking customers. How are those going to relate across the schedules, you know, is GSA looking to renegotiate pricing based on the consolidation? I'm not sure that they are at this point, but that will be, GSA is going to have to make some determination of fair and reasonable pricing for the consolidated schedule as part of that modification. Um, you know, what kind of commercial terms apply to each of those different schedules you may or may not have ever negotiated? Um, and creating that consistency and uniformity Across the schedules program, one of the things that consolidation is supposed to try to address is an increased consistency on the part of GSA, which means, you know, correspondingly that, you know, different contracting officers in different centers, even contracting officers in the same center may have treated different issues. I mean, some issues differently, right? And negotiated different, uh, taken different approaches. How GSA works to create a uniform sort of approach to that and how companies who have multiple contracts and sometimes benefit from the different treatment and sometimes, you know, it harms them. How is that going to be addressed when you go to the, to the multiple wards? And then the last thing I'd mention on that is to be vitally important for all those companies who have multiple contracts to the extent they have BPAs out there and orders that those somehow are addressed and, you know, those legacy things stay in place at when they consolidate. Would you say this is the perfect time for GSA to quietly put the price reduction clause to bed? <laughs> Wait, is this, is, thank you for that, you know, you know softball thing there. Yeah, I mean, it's time for it to, uh, but, to go. But it's, they could just change mass modification. Yeah. You're already doing it. Just quietly put out a, a GFARS that says – we will no longer worry about the the, the price reduction yeah. clause and move on. Right, I, I, I think it's time. I mean, yeah, it's well, you know, you see the aperture of it or the you know applicability, um, you slow narrowing. You know, for companies, that's the other aspect actually too. When you think about it, if when you're consolidating contracts, if you have transactional data on one contract, you can consolidate down. 
you can then extend that transactional data reporting across all those contracts when you consolidate it to one. So that's and that eliminates the price reduction clause. What GSA, as part of eliminating the price reduction clause, one of the things that I know service companies would like to see is you know uh, a more aggressive approach to implementing the unpriced schedule. The you know the authority GSA got in NDAA. Congress said yes, you can do this and move out and address you know the unpriced schedule concept where you don't negotiate pricing at the contract level. You sort of establish rates perhaps and publish them, and then at the order levels where you have the competition and make the determination on pricing. DOD's had that authority for several years. They've used it on their new Seaport E and other contracts. GSA has the authority for the schedules program and its other contracts. You know, I don't know what the issue is. Congress said, yes, you can do this, so why not go and do it? That's and this other, is a perfect opportunity to do it. That's the other thing that happened in 2019 that we didn't talk about. No one talked about TDR pilot, did they? No, they didn't. They just sort of extended it. Um, and you know, and, and now as part of schedules consolidation, it's probably just going to get a bigger part of the overall program in terms of contractors under it. And I know we're up on the break. Jason, when we come back, we, we would be remiss if we didn't discuss the e-commerce Section 846 stuff. In the, in the context of GSA, and then let's move on to cyber and some of some of the other things. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He is the executive editor of the Federal News Network. We're taking we're you know, highlighting some of the just some of the key things and uh, happenings of 2019, and we could do like three shows, couldn't we? Oh yeah, you could do plenty of shows. We could focus on just the, GSA, or just Department of Defense, <laughs> GSA. You could do DH. You could do a little bit of every HHS, perhaps. Well, uh, okay, let's start there. <laughs> okay, um, but we'll start the segment. Uh, by finishing up on GSA a little bit, and that's, you know, GSA has been responsible for the implementation of Section 846 and the e-commerce uh, platform. Um, you know, right now, you know, we're in GSA is in the midst of, um, you know, the procurement for it. Um, and Jason, your observations of the year past on that. So back in December, I broke the news that there was actually the first protest of the e-commerce solicitation. Oh, no, this December. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, last December. Yeah, I'm, I get confused. You know, I am really confused on my 20, time. 2019, right? Well, that's what happens when you get we're, really old. We're in 2020 now. Yeah, I know. I, I'm sorry. And that was surprising because it's not so much that there was a protest. It goes back to the segment one when we talked about protest. But it was the who protested. In this case, it was Amazon. And while Amazon initially was said they gave me the no comment only to call me back a couple of days later to be like, no, no, we want to comment now. Their protest was very interesting because it, it said GSA didn't do enough market research. It said GSA's market research was was either missing or incomplete. And they also had concerns about some of the compliance issues that we've been that you've been talking about for the last year and a half around this this program. And one thing that stands out to me is GSA spent a lot of time with uh, the e-commerce platform. They've had industry days, they've had meetings, they've received comments. There's not been a lack of market research. Now, you can disagree with their with the conclusion they came to from their market research, but there's definitely not been uh, any lack of, of market research. But I was surprised that Amazon 
decided to file an agency level protest, which, as you well know, is kind of under the covers. You only hear about it when you hear about it from somebody else. It's not to GAO. It's not to the Court of Federal Claims. It's just kind of like a a, would you call it kind of a a marker, a a raising of hand to say, hey, we have some concerns about this. And if they're not fixed, we we may be more public about it. They're trying to under the covers. Would you call it that? Yeah, or even you could even characterize it in a certain sense as a negotiation, like raising specific negotiation issues in advance of. The submission of the offers, like saying, hey, these are issues for us. Are you going to address them or not? And without raising it to a level of like truly formal GAO court of claims litigation, um, you know, with regard to Amazon, I, I mean, I, they I mean, I guess the, the, the concern that I know um, our members, I think, probably share with a lot of folks, perhaps even Amazon listening, you know, given what you described with regard to their protest is is the lack of, um, I guess, analysis of that whatever commercial market research. So if you look at their phase two report, there's like an, you know, a page maybe, page and a half of a summary discussion of just a certain subset of items with regard to um, the commercial terms and conditions. And that's kind of something that you know, I've raised multiple times is that the statute specifically required GSA to do um, a review of e- e-commerce terms and conditions, platform terms and standard terms and conditions in the context of government requirements. And to, to I would think it's fair to say, in a neutral observer, there's no real discussion of that in that report. Like, so for example, the one of the ones that people care a lot about is organizational conflict of interest. Now it's in the FAR. It's part. contracting officers have an obligation to mitigate those. You know, a platform provider who sets the rules of entry to the market and then also competes directly, including the fees that are charged third-party suppliers, but also competes directly at those suppliers, that is a classic conflict of interest. You know, uh, a platform provider who reports to just say the level of savings, that's like a student grading their own papers, that's, you know, in a class, that's a conflict of interest. Yet those have not been addressed. You can say, yes, they're conflicts and decide to waive them for whatever reason, but to not even acknowledge that they're conflicts. And if you look at the Q&As GSA put out, they just say, well, it's a commercial practice. You know, it's not necessarily a conflict. Well, I, I mean, that's the wrong reading of the law. So those kind of things and other commercial practices, and are they consistent with with federal practice or federal law, there isn't a real good analysis in part there. And perhaps that's what the agency protest was about. I'm, I'm not sure. But, um, you know, it'd be interesting to see, you know, in this, for the sake of transparency, GSA provide like whatever modifications are made to the solicitation for, for the public to see. I'm just going to throw this out there. Sure. I'm not going to ask you to comment on it. Just a little food for thought. But yes, you are really, though, I think. No, go ahead. <laughs> Could... GSA, and I'll be clear about this, could GSA just let this program, this effort, just kind of quietly go away? The congressman who pushed for this, Mac Thornberry, is retiring. The staffer who supposedly wanted this, Bob Daigle, is no longer with the committee, and I'm not even sure he's with DOD anymore. Uh, and, and if Amazon, who this everyone thought that, you know, we, we used to call it the Amazon Amendment when it was in the NDA, if they're not happy with the outcomes, based on the solicitation, could GSA kind of pull it back and just kind of 
we're going to relook at this and then never do anything about it. I'm just throwing it out there, Roger. Well, I guess the way I'd answer that is that they have characterized what they're doing as a proof of concept pilot. And, you know, that provides GSA the opportunity to take a critical look at the performance of it and address it down the road and come to that conclusion you just described. Or perhaps it ends up, um, you know, providing value to uh, customer agencies. The, the, you know, the rub of the matter from, I think, a lot of companies' perspective is that they fall into the other two categories, the e-procurement or the e-commerce platforms, and, you know, they're shut out of this market. So I, and I think that's, a, frankly, a missed opportunity for GSA. You know, if the goal is to have the successful program, you have to reflect the commercial market, not just one segment of it, even though it's, you know, a large segment. But, you know, it, including those, if your goal is to provide fundamental benefits to the to the agencies and the taxpayer, you know, there's a missed opportunity there not testing and including those so that they can compete across each of the different types as well. And related to this is the Section 889, which is the supply chain side of it and ensuring that agencies are buying products and, and services, but more products that are not, if you will, full of back doors, full of of malware. Right. Well, they specifically Huawei is you know is the prohibition on, it, and then there's some other Chinese, ZTE, yeah ZTE, and then there's Chinese comp- other surveillance you know equipment companies that are also listed. You know, in the e-commerce platform, that's a great example of how Section 889 is going to be implemented moving forward. Who has responsibility for screening the products? Is it the platform provider? You know, is it, you know, just incumbent on the individual buyer, someone who's got a purchase card um, and buying and goes and looks for a server and they see a price on the platform of a server that's made in China, let's say it's, you know, and it's a prohibitive product, but it's 900 bucks. Is this person with the credit card who's working in an office, their boss just told them to go buy it. And he sees another one that's three times as much, but it's made in the United States or made in a trade agreements that country, an ally, whatever, you know, what's going to happen? They're going to, you know, people focus on the cost. They're going to go buy, theoretically, possibly buy the wrong one, you know, the cheap one, and go back and say, I saved us a lot of money. In the meantime, you're compromising market. That's the nightmare scenario. Um, but the questions of how that products are going to be screened, um, the certification requirements for individual sellers with regard to the product, that's the first part that's being implemented right now. The next part of Huawei is, you know, prohibitions on use of the, their equipment in your performance of the contract or even just dealing with other companies who are use, uh, you know, prohibited equipment in their operations as well. It's a far-reaching prohibition that goes beyond government contracts. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in 2020. The supply chain piece is is fascinating. We could probably talk a whole show on that one too. Yeah. Uh, let me just offer this before we have to go to another break. This idea of the flow down into subcontractors and subcontractors and different tiers, I, I'm not sure that that is going to be as easily said as is easily done as is said. And I'm, I think that it's going to require DOD. It's going to require Congress. It's going to require the Commerce Department, to, to take a step back and ask, is there a better way? Is there a post-testing approach versus a pre-screening approach they can take? I don't know what the answer is. I just know that talking to several vendors and following this fairly closely, you cannot say no one can use Huawei or ZTE 
and, and still meet a mission that, for instance, the five G concerns. And I know there's been some some issues around that, but but. There's a lot to talk there. Yeah, so and when we come back, we can continue that conversation and then take a look, even more in forward-looking look at two, at the rest of 2020, you know, since this is Happy New Year, right? So uh, and my guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is the executive editor of the Federal, of the Federal News Network, Jason Millard. Jason, um, so we're in the last segment. Um, we were talking about um, you know supply chain risk management and you know Section Eight Eighty Nine, but there's also the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program that DoD is you know, working on, um, you know, and just the ubiquitous nature of the cyber issues um, in government now and just where where do you see that? What, what did you see this year and where do you think, see things going? In 2019, we saw a big ramp up of the concerns about supply chain, not just because of the, the rules around the Huawei and ZTE, we talked about 889, but also the creation of the Federal Acquisition Security Council, which we should expect more from them in 2020. And, and additionally, the DOD announcing the CMMC piece, which is a very uh, – I see a lot of similarities between the FedRAMP cloud security program where you have third-party auditors looking at uh, – agency or, or, or vendor systems and, and giving it the yes or the no. I think what's different, however, is I'm not sure – I think on this case for DOD, I think they were trying to eat the whole elephant. I think they were trying to eat the apple in one bite. Right? Like what, what Mark Foreman-esque uh, uh, sayings you want to use there, instead of trying to take a different approach, which would be, okay, let's start with our tier one contractors, the Lockheeds, the Boeings, the Raytheons, the Northrop Grumman's, and then move down from there – or let's see what's available in the commercial sector, the ISO standards, the ANSI standards, and say you must have these and you'll get a plus one on your evaluation criteria. Uh, very similar. I was explaining this the other day in the newsroom to what cyber insurance is and the, the idea that how do you lower your insurance rate? Well, I did this certification. I passed this sure. bar. All of a sudden, you're, the insurance company says, well, they're doing these things, so we're going to It's like getting good down, grades so. and getting in, uh, reduced insurance exactly. on your car, or, or right? Good, the good driver discount. Right. But yes, for, yes, for, yes. For, so maybe there's other ways DOD could achieve the same goal without having to this – what is coming to be a very worrisome program that seems, okay, how do I ensure that my – fifth-tier subcontractor that I'm buying one part from for this big, big system is is cyber secure in some way, meeting level one or level two criteria. And I'm not sure DOD, good intention, but did they think it through all the way? You know, I I mean, this is a tough one because I think no matter what you do, there's obviously it's it's such a big challenge and big issue in the economy as a whole, you know, with – State actors in in terms of you know economic espionage as well as um, you know national security you know threats um, that I, my sense is that it's going to be all those things right and you know whether it's driven by private sector imperatives to protect trade secrets and intellectual property and that sort of thing versus and insurance drivers uh, with regard to 
you know, ensuring protection of personal identification information by companies who serve the public to the Department of Defense coming up with a CMMC model. And then how does that sort of navigate and flow into how you deal with your supply chain and all those subcontracts? I think all those things are going to continue to move forward, you know, across the board. I don't know what the answer is, but the, all those things will be in play. And um, and as it sorts itself out, you'll see a framework, I think, developed. Uh, and the government is driving a lot of this right now, the Department of Defense. You know, we've we've – had DOD speakers come and talk to members and talk about this is fundamental to our procurement. It's not even a, it's not a trade off anymore. It's you know where you it, to the extent it ever was. It's like you know if 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 uh, one of our near peer competitors you know steals you know some technology or the blueprints for the latest you know plane. It doesn't do me any good if the price was really fair and reasonable that it had all these great technical capabilities and got a outstanding and you know you know rating in the evaluation if the inf- in it's not it doesn't do me any good if it's you know delivered early if it's already been compromised so you know, they truly are approaching it as a fundamental requirement you know and there's different ways to go about that right there's some will say just you know put the marker down there um I hit the table for effect there right Jason. Um, and just and drive people to do it like the one big or there's an evolutionary approach you know I, I think at the end of the day it's going to be a little bit of both how, how concerned are your members about the CMMC how often does this come up for you well this is I mean you know we're we're responding to it by um, providing them as much information as we can get about you didn't it answer my question I'm not gonna answer All right, fair well, enough. No, it's your show but, uh, yeah well I think <laughs> yeah everybody's concerned about it and where it's going that's why we've had DOD come talk what's why we're sharing as much information as they can people need to want to understand what it means for their business for federal business how much is it going to cost them you know what does it mean in terms of you know um, you know the their government contracts and reimbursement for those costs or not? Um, how do they address that? Those are all questions that I think over the course of the next, you know, 12 months or so, hopefully we'll get some answers to those. And one of our jobs is to make sure we get as much information out there to industry and the public um, so that people can understand and react. And, you know, one of the things I have learned, you know, having worked in the government and the private sector is – one of the things that is fundamental is some sort of understanding and consistency in operations. Like you can understand what the rules are, you have to adjust to them, and you're trying to make the rules reasonable, right? So, you know, we'll see where it goes from there. That's sort of a non-answer. We have about three minutes left, Jason, so um, we didn't get to cover everything we wanted. Like you said, we could do two or three shows here on, you know, different agencies and whatnot. But what, you know, as you look forward, do you have any thoughts, big predictions for next year? My, or not, or small predictions. Wow. I spent some time in December at the National Contract Management Association, and if you, you know, there's your conference, and then there's everybody else's conference. But if you, of course, if you're going to go to another one <laughs> on contracting, NCMA is a good one. <laughs> I was there too. Yes. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me, and that I think we'll see in 2020, is maybe the one big trend that will really start to to expand, is this concept, and, and it's not new per se, but I think the approach is new of agile acquisition, and, and this is the idea that you see at the Procurement Innovation Lab at DHS, you see stuff at the Air Force, and you see kind of a change of how agencies are procuring 
technology and meeting programmatic needs in a way that's not just you know agile development or DevOps or or get out of the waterfall, but this really idea of bringing the concepts of agile development and DevOps into acquisition, where you're bringing in the user and they're they're sitting down with you and writing the requirements and they're bringing in the vendors at the same time and helping write the requirements. And again, we're not talking about OCI stuff, but this concept of who who's really going to do the work and who's the user and how can we ensure that whatever we come out with is going to work, is going to meet capabilities, and we can continue to build on it. And, you know, we, again, I heard it from the Air Force. You heard it from DHS. You heard it from other agencies that agile acquisition, Roger, I'm going to put the stake in the ground now. We'll be, we'll be talking about this uh, next year this time. Yeah. Just a couple thoughts for me is I th- you you know with all the s- supply chain issues I think you can continue to see you know this uh, you know the the supply chain and changes in the supply chain to address the those um, security issues just in terms of the logistics of it and where things are made and that sort of stuff. The other issue, just real quickly, that you know I'm looking forward to seeing in 2020 is Fast 2020 GSA's. You know, training uh, conference that's going to be in, in Atlanta in April 14th through 16th. I think that's a huge. There's a huge opportunity there and potential for uh, training uh, across government, leveraging leveraging that training. And with all that's going on in GSA, whether it's a s- schedules consolidation, um, you know, the e-commerce platform. You know, we haven't even talked about best-in-class contracts, but an agile acquisition um, as well. It's a, it's it's going to be a great platform for training and also that engagement between government and industry, that you know where folks when you talk and you exchange information, you ultimately get better outcomes. So you're going to be there. Yes, I am actually. Yes, how did you know? You couldn't tell from what I said. So well, I look forward to hopefully seeing you and, and all our great friends at GSA. Absolutely, and Jason. Uh, once again, happy New Year to you and um, thanks for coming on the show I appreciate it Uh, my guest today has been Jason Miller he's the executive editor of the Federal News Network I'm Roger Waldron and you've been listening to Off the Shelf of the Federal News Network you've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One 